Let's pray. Father, indeed how great you are. We stand here today and we just marvel at your grace and your love for us as a body of believers. Lord, we marvel at the salvation you've given us through the Son, which we will explore in the text today. And we marvel at your grace that a body of believers in three and a half years would have this facility. (laughs) It's but God. It is but you. And indeed, all glory goes to you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask that you would guide us as we go to the text today. Thank you for your precious word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, First and second Corinthians, you need to keep going. If you get to Revelation, you've gone way too far. <laughs> I want to thank those who have prayed, those who have given, those who have cheered, and those who have served for countless hours to make this morning a reality. Particularly want to thank our elders, our deacons, our staff, our building committee, capital can pain committee, the families of our church leadership who have sacrificed much in picking up the slack at the home front. I know I personally want to thank my wife and my two kids for the sacrifices they have made. I told the prayer meeting Thursday night that we made a mistake in this building. There should have been Kleenexes installed, boxes in the chairs. Uh, So uh, we'll all rejoice in tears today. But none of this, we know, would not have been possible if it were not for our glorious Lord. How else do you explain the launching of a church nearly three and a half years ago in the midst of a pandemic with no supporting denomination or sending church to having our first service in a building that our congregation just approved 15 months ago to build? (laughs) There's only one explanation and that's God. I was reading in Nehemiah, a text that we had studied as a body of believers some time ago, and all the naysayers were out there, those opponents of the Israelites, and I love Nehemiah 6, it says, even Israelites' enemies, who did not believe in Yahweh, who did not believe in the Lord, said they knew this work had been accomplished by the help of God. <laughs> that, my friends, is CBF, and to God be the glory for what he has done in this glorious morning that we are together. If you're just visiting, it is our custom to work through a book of the Bible. We just completed a series on 1 John. Next week, we will launch our Christmas series. I know that's hard to believe. We'll still be eating leftovers from Thanksgiving. But nonetheless, we will begin a Christmas series, and then in January, we'll look at the book of Acts. And so the question, though, this morning was, what would be a fitting text for our dedication Sunday? I could not think of a more appropriate and I would argue fundamental to the faith passage than Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14. It's a text that speaks of our glorious Lord and the praise that is due him. And so we'll see here in chapter 1 of Ephesians, starting in verse 3, we see 
what is typical of a Greco-Roman letter, we'll start off with this greeting, I, Paul, to the church, or however the, the letter is laid out. And then there is a hymn of praise, a doxology, so to speak, a, a one of, of exaltation. And verses 3 through 14 are that. In fact, it is one sentence in the Greek. <laughs> 202 words. That is a run-on sentence. But... One commentator stated it well. The abundance of words does not denote verbosity or verbosity, but instead it's an attempt to see or use a, a multitude of words to praise God for his supernatural plan and acts that are almost beyond description. He'll start, Paul will, in praising God the Father. He'll then move to the Son, as we're going to see, and then to the Holy Spirit. And at the end of each of those sections, he says it's to the praise of of his glory. So let's look what he starts here in verse three. Paul writes, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul will pin this letter to the church at Ephesus and really it's talking about the value of the church and God's plan for them and then how they fit into this. He says, blessed is the God and Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. This opening blessing really sets the tone for all the next 12, 11 verses. Notice what he states about the Father. If you're taking notes and new to the church, we do have a quiz that we give at the end. I know some of you are looking, really? Uh, no, we don't. But we do have notes there for you in your bulletin. Paul notes several things about God. First of all, he says he is the Father. This will be key because he will come back to him being father because we are adopted, those who've placed their faith in Christ into God's family. He says, secondly, he's the father of, watch this, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's personal. <laughs> this is our Jesus, the one from Nazareth, who is Lord and who is the Meshua, who is the Messiah, who is the Christ. That's key here. And then he says, he's blessed us, that is God the Father, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. It's an interesting phrase, heavenly realms. He'll, he'll use it five times when he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. And that's because I believe Ephesus was known for the worship of Artemis, the goddess of the heavenlies. And Paul's saying, ah, oh, that's nothing. We worship the God of the heavens. And he has blessed us with all that comes from him. And then he notes one more thing in verse four. For he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That we might be holy and untarnished in the sight and love. The father chose us in Christ. Observe who is the subject. It's God. God does the choosing. It's personal. He chose us. And note, there are no prerequisites or obligations. In other words, our salvation, if you know Christ as your savior this morning, it was not by chance. <laughs> Rather, this choosing was a deliberate intention by God. And notice it's before the foundation of the world. The Lord has literally given of himself so that we could be drawn into fellowship with him. It's an act that we didn't request. We weren't even born yet. <laughs> we didn't request it. We didn't expect it. And we certainly couldn't have imagined it. 
We'll see the purpose for our choosing here is clear. It's so that we are holy and we are unblemished. In other words, we're just like our father. <laughs> That's the goal. And the purpose of this, and by the means of which he does that, is in verse 5. He did this by predestining us as adoptions. He'll use the word predestined twice, and I know it makes some break out in a rash. But <laughs> the term means simply determined beforehand. One commentator writes, he states, the focus is not on the who is predestined, but to what is one predestined and what does the text tell us? We've been predestined to be sons and daughters. Under Roman law, adoption was very significant in the first century. It removed any obligation to the former life, to the former natural father, and, and it placed someone in a new status, privilege, and even property. As children of God, we're no longer obligated to our old father. We enjoy the benefits and the blessings of being a part of this. How does that happen? Paul's not done. Notice what he states. He predestined us his adoption through, there's the key, through Jesus Christ. And he's going to elaborate that, and we'll see that in a minute in verses 7 through 12. And he did all of this. And this is what blows my mind as I look at the text. Why did he do all of this? Verse six, to the praise of his glory. In other words, to the pleasure of his will, he did it. Years ago, I served on a committee at a university and our task was to assign students, well, we were, we were giving out monies. It was for scholarships. And you looked at character, you looked at service, you looked at intellect, and it was these individuals then who would receive X amount of dollars. The Lord isn't giving out scholarships. I mean, let's face it. If the Lord was looking for character, service, and intellect, no one would have received anything. We wouldn't have been chosen. First Corinthians 1 states, but God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised the world, was regarded as nothing to set aside what is regarded as something so that no one can boast in his presence. I don't know about you, but I must confess, I say to myself, self, <laughs> who am I? Who are we? We were singing, how great thou art, tears are flowing down. I'm going, who are we before you, almighty God? Uh, you may be asking that about the person sitting next to you. I don't know. <laughs> uh, really? The text tells us he did it for his pleasure, but at the end of the day, I cannot get my head around the depth, <laughs> the width, the height of his magnificent love. Fred Sanders in his book, The Deep Things of God, writes, there was no external necessity imposed on the Lord, nor did he have any internal need. The perfect blessedness of God would not have been compromised by the final failure of humanity. God did not save us to re rescue himself from sadness over our plight. Whew, did you catch that? He saved us freely out of an astonishing abundance of generosity. 
amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There's another question that arises here as we look at this idea that God chose us in Christ. And I I hear it from time to time. How how do I know I've been chosen? (laughs) I always hated playing sports when they would put us all together and then they would select two captains who would then take turns choosing who would be on their team. Inevitably, I was one of the last. Of course, you know it's really bad when they're picking people who have crutches. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so you're the last, you're, you're picked, and, and you're going, I, I hope I'm at least on my friend's team. I hope they choose me. And, and I meet people who, who kind of approach God that way. It, it, it's, I, I hope I, he's chosen me for his team. And while verse four is clear that God chose us before the foundation of the world, scripture is also clear, even in verse 13, which we will see later, the gospel still requires human responsibility to respond to the message. John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's a mystery here. Theologians have tried to solve it. <laughs> But scripture is clear, who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And yet God has chose us before the foundation of the world. And so, I would argue at the end of the day, the question is that we, we shouldn't be asking is whether God has chose us. That's not the question. The question is, have you chosen Christ? Have you responded to Jesus' death on the cross for your sins? The Lord has exercised his rights by including the responsible, of, the responsible act for men and women to respond. He's given us that choice, whether we're going to receive him or not. And he did this all again in verse six. Why? To the praise of his glory. <laughs> wow. He chose us for his glory, for his praise. God has provided a means for us to know him, but the creator of the universe rules on his terms. It's on his turf. This past week, soccer star Megan Ropino was injured in her final match of her professional career. Did you hear her response? She states, I'm not a religious person or anything, and if there was a God, well, like, This is proof there isn't. Sadly, Megan's response could be echoed by many in our society. If there was a God, then the question is asked, why do I go through such an ugly divorce? Why was I sexually abused? Why did I lose a child to drugs? Why was I diagnosed with cancer? Really? There's a God who is loving? The living, holy And sovereign God is not a life preserver when we are sinking. (laughs) He's not a cup of medicine when we need him or some magical crystal that we can hang over our rear view mirror. This was the mistake the Israelites made. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? God's presence dwelt on top of it. They thought, well, we'll just take this into battle as a good luck charm. And things went horribly wrong. They thought they could confine God to a box. 
Ephesians 1 reminds us that God is the giver of all good things. He is the sovereign one who reigns. And anything we receive from him is by his grace. The text is clear. Apart from the Lord, we can do nothing. It's he who has extended his grace to us out of love. An act that gives no right to question This past week, I was meeting with Kyle Harvey, one of our own. What a contrast to Miss Megan, the soccer player. Here's Kyle, 42, with two kids, diagnosed with terminal cancer, brain tumor, the stem of his brain. Kyle said, I do not know why, but I know who. He goes on, he says, I I know that in the Lord I can trust and I can give him praise. That's our God. Oh, Miss Megan, if you would just understand, (laughs) God is far bigger than your Achilles. Promise one, there was nothing good in your notes to warrant God's selection. The reason is simple. God loved us so that we could glorify him. It's John 3.16. It's our responsibility as individuals. It's our responsibility as CBF to glorify him. You'll notice Christ's name appears four times in the verses we've just read. And now we turn to Christ. Because as John 3.16 declares, he gave us his unique and precious son. So notice verse 7. In him, that is Christ, goes back to the dearly beloved son of verse 6. We have redemption, watch this, through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption becomes a key word to Paul in this letter to the church at Ephesus. It indicates emancipation. It's a payment that has been referred, given to us through Christ's death on the cross. And it is the necessary means to secure that desired release. Note that the redemption is the cause or reason, uh, excuse me, is the cause or reason Christ came and forgiveness is the effect. Our sin violated a holy God and it requires punishment. And God made a means through his son and that is through the blood, his death. Hebrews 9 says, indeed under the law almost Everything is purified with the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. When you look at the cross, it's not just about the love of Christ, God's love, sending his son. It also displays his righteousness, his justice, his holiness, and his glory. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said it well, if you do not see them all at the cross, You have not seen the cross. It's all there. And indeed, what grace in verse 8 that he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, he did this when he revealed to us the secret of his will according to his good pleasure. It's an insight that's been given to believers. In other words, an understanding of what it is that Christ has done and how he's redeemed us at the cross. This mystery or secret is revealed in Christ. He's the goal of this secret as well (laughs) and the basis for it. Again, no, we are not the subject. 
It is God who has graciously acted in his fullness of time, making Christ not only the head of all creation, but as we know in Colossians 1, the head of the church, our Savior. To the point in verse 11, here it comes. He says, we are Christ or God's own possession since we were predestined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his will. We're his possession. It's used of the Hebrews, <laughs> used of the Israelites in Deuteronomy 4. It's God's people and with that comes a heritage that we have in God. We belong to him. And God ordained this so that we could be a part of it. One scholar writes, God's wisdom and grace are beyond every creature's comprehension or understanding. One can but only bow in worship and in praise. And what is the tended purpose? Verse 12, so that we are the first to set our hope on Christ. And here it is, would be to the praise of his glory. <laughs> True forgiveness, promise two there in your notes, meaning and hope are found solely in Christ. You want to unload the guilt? You want to remove the junk in your life? Find meaning? Then look to the cross. <laughs> this is why as Christ followers, our aim should be to exalt his name as we live a life of gratitude and praise to him. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, to glorify the Lord is our chief business of life. I would argue it is the only reason for life is to glorify God. And that's why it says in verses 13 and 14, he comes to the spirit. When you've heard the word of truth, notice this, when you've believed, there's the human side responsibility in Christ, you were marked with a promise that is the Holy Spirit as a down payment of your inheritance. Unlike other religions, Christianity, I would argue, is based on truth. That's what he says in verse 13. When you've heard the word of truth, it indicates the content that has been given. On Monday of this last week, headlines shook the world as longtime atheist and former Muslim, Ayan Hursi Ali, had converted to Christianity. Anyan had served as a member of the Dutch parliament from 2003 to 2006 and had been a very vocal critic of Islam and a very outspoken atheist. However, recently she admitted that atheism failed to answer the eternal question, what is the meaning and purpose of life? She goes on, she believes that without Christianity, the West cannot withstand China, Russia, Iran. It cannot counter Islam with secularism and will be unable to fight woke ideology, which she claims is determined to destroy civilization. She then writes, we endeavor to fend off these threats with modern secular tools, military, economic, diplomatic, technological efforts. We, we bribe, we persuade, we appease. And she says, and yet, without every round of conflict, we find ourselves losing ground. She states, the only solution is found in Christianity. Amen and amen. <laughs> That's it. That's what Ephesians is stating. Why are we here? To exalt our God. I mean, why would a devout atheist, a former Muslim, make such a declaration? Ms. Ayan has understood that God's word is true. 
It is in here that we learn of God's love and the sacrifice of our Savior, the dwelling of the Spirit, and in it we have hope. We have salvation found in this one that has been revealed. And the Lord in his graciousness not only called us, not only gave us his son, but he's given us a guarantee of eternal life, a presence with him through the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's what we see in here in verses 13 and 14. The installment is, it's, it's a down payment. It's used of earnest money, monies that were forfeited if the purchase was not completed. This down payment also indicated the surety of additional payments. Mrs. Smith, a fifth grade math teacher, posed the problem to one of her classes. She stated, a wealthy man dies and leaves $10 million. One fifth is to go to his wife, one fifth goes to the son, and one sixth to his butler and the rest to charity. She then asks the class, now, what does each get? There's silence, and then little Mickey says, easy, a lawyer. <laughs> Our inheritance, no lawyers are needed. Our inheritance is guaranteed. The Lord's estate is not in jeopardy. Our inheritance is guaranteed. His last will and testament is not going to be altered. Our inheritance is guaranteed. There is nothing we can do to alter the benefactor's love for us. It has been sealed with the Holy Spirit. It is a guarantee that there's a day coming when we will be in his presence. And that leads us to that third promise. Assurance of eternal life is found in the presence of the Holy Spirit that guarantees he will be glorified. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, listen to these words. He says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and has given us his spirit, Holy Spirit, in our hearts as a guarantee. Wow. That's what Paul's saying here. The love of God, our salvation, and the guarantee that we will dwell with our Lord brings God glory. And on this momentous day, when we in the life of this church gather in our permanent home, may our lives bring him glory. It has to begin by responding to the gospel, or that is the good news. That is by recognizing that we are imperfect before a holy God. Our crud deserves judgment. And that judgment, thankfully, has been paid by Christ who came and died on a cross for our sins and rose again three days later. He is victorious, not only over sin, but death. And the text tells us whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me challenge you today, if you don't know Christ, and I would dare say there are some in this room that don't, today is the day. Bend your knee. Come understand what someone like Ayakas Hersey Ali would state. <laughs> this is the answer. Or a Kyle Harvey would say, God is in control. 
that's someone who understands. If you know Christ as your savior, then we need to be constantly reminded of our Lord's love and the salvation he's been granted to us. We need to be led by the Holy Spirit as we fix our eyes on eternity. And we need to be busy loving God and loving others. There's also a challenge, I think, corporately from Ephesians 1. Thought much about this as instructions for us as a body of believers. I'm gonna give us three challenges from this text. First of all, we must be intentional in giving God glory. One of the great dangers is that we are complacent with our beautiful new building, the fine decorum and our healthy financial status that we fail to give God glory. Pride, self-sufficiency, and, and being comfortable can easily eclipse what is our role here as a body of believers. We as a congregation to be ever mindful that our church should be a place filled with the awe of God as we worship him. CBF must maintain its adherence to sound doctrine, the teaching of God's word for all ages. If we don't, shut the doors, lock them. We must adhere to it, whether it's inconvenient or perhaps even very costly. And finally, CBF should constantly be reminded of its role as a testimony to the power of God and the grace he's lavished on us. And so number one, we owe church, we need to be intentional in giving God glory. Secondly, we must seek only God's glory. What do I mean by this? Well, as a body of believers, it's our desire to let God be God over the church. It isn't just the danger of complacency, that's the first one. But here the danger is compartmentalization or accommodation. God's glory is not confined to this sanctuary, nor it's to be eclipsed by programs or initiatives. The church is not a business, it's not an organization for social justice, an entertainment center, or a social club. It is a place where God's glory is revealed and we are called to live out what God has graciously done in our lives. And finally, we need to be sensitive to God's glory. This is done by living out our salvation according to the scriptures and in the power of the Holy Spirit as we become more like our Christ. When visitors come through the door and they ask, where's the glory of God? <laughs> well, then let me take you to the center. Let me take you to the cafe. Let me take you to the children's area or to the, the tech suite. And you'll see the glory of God, or at least you should, personified in the character of his followers. There's a testimony of how God is working and they will catch this glimpse of who God is as we reflect his glory. If the Lord should tarry, and I pray he doesn't, but if he should tarry, may Community Bible Fellowship Church be known as a group of believers who exist for the praise of God's glory. Father, we come to you. Thank you. Thank you for how the text is revealed before you even placed the mountain and the stars, the rivers were formed and the fish and all that it entails, you thought of us. 
We didn't deserve it. (laughs) And yet, if that's not just sufficient enough that you'd lavish your love on choosing us, you've given us a means to have a relationship with you by sending your son who came to earth, who dwelt among us, and then took on our sin at Calvary. Lord, we marvel that you, your son, would shed his blood on our behalf. And we have the opportunity to believe and to be brought into fellowship with you. And then we have the spirit which guides, directs, and ultimately ensures that we have a home with you. Father, thank you. To God be the glory, great things you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.